We gather here as individual people in all our glorious variety. Together, across the generations, young and old, of all genders and sexualities, temporarily able and disabled, all the colours of humanity, theists, humanists, agnostics, each working out how to live and making meaning as best we can. We meet here to share the journey. And we gather here as a community of people who are more than these categories too. We gather here each ministering to the other, meeting one another's strength, encouraging wholeness. We give thanks for this extraordinary blessing, this gathering together of separate and unique individuals as one whole, one body, one church. Here may our minds stretch, our hearts open, our spirits deepen as we hear each other's stories of what life is really like for each of us. Here, may we acknowledge our struggles and be ever stirred by love's infinite possibilities. Here we are gathered, just as we are, gathered and ready to worship together. Well, these opening words adapted by, from some by Barbara Hamilton Holway. They welcome all those who have gathered this morning for our Sunday service. Welcome to those of you who are here in person at Essex Church. Welcome to all who are joining us via Zoom from far and wide. For anyone who doesn't know me, my name's Jane Blackall and I'm Minister with Kensington Unitarians. This morning's service marks the International Day of Disabled People and I've given it the title Disability Visibility. That title is nicked from the very excellent book of the same name, edited by Alice Wong, a fantastic powerhouse of disability justice activism. And I've put a few of her words on the front of our order of service today, which hopefully set the tone for today's explorations. And those words are also on our website, along with the text of the whole service, if you want to read it later. Alice Wong writes, To me, disability is not a monolith nor is it a clear-cut binary of disabled and non-disabled. Disability is mutable and ever-evolving. Disability is both apparent and non-apparent. Disability is pain, struggle, brilliance, abundance and joy. Disability is socio-political, cultural and biological. And being visible and claiming a disabled identity brings risks as much as it brings pride words by Alice Wong. So in the next hour we'll be reflecting on disability and how it potentially impacts all our lives, 
with help from Michaela von Britzka and from Karen Hill-Jones, who will each offer their own personal reflections. But let's pause and check in with ourselves before we go any further. How are you doing this morning? How are you doing in body, in mind and in spirit? Maybe you need to take a breath or two, a conscious breath to settle in. Maybe it'd help you to stretch and shake off any tension you came in carrying. Or perhaps you could do with intentionally setting aside any worries that are on your mind, that are bouncing around your brain. Let's be here now as best we can. I'm going to light our chalice flame now as I do each week. It's a simple ritual that connects us in solidarity with Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists the world over. And it reminds us of the proudly progressive tradition of which this gathering is part. gather this morning as one community, a community united by common ideals, love, justice, diversity, freedom, equity and mutual care. Yet look around, think about who else is gathered here, become aware of the beloved souls all around you, each one an individual, every one of us with our own particular story, our needs, our strengths, our faults. So we light our chalice today, honouring our common connection and also the uniqueness that lives within each and every one of us. And let us light our Advent candle too. We're going to light the first candle for the second time. As some of you already know, I got a bit carried away last week and unilaterally declared Advent a week early. But as I said last week, Traditionally, the first candle represents hope, and God knows with the world in the state it is these days, we could all do with an extra helping of hope, I reckon. So may we know hope this Advent season, hope for transformation of all the world's suffering. Time to see. Our first hymn today is number 193 in your purple books. We laugh, we cry. It's a lovely hymn. It's a long hymn about what it's like to be together in community. Um, for those joining via Zoom, the words will be up on screen. Feel free to stand or sit as you prefer, and let's do our best to sing up. We laugh, we cry.
Let's take those joys and concerns, both spoken and unspoken, into an extended time of prayer now. This is based on some words by Isla Forrester. You might want to adjust your position to get more comfortable. You might want to close your eyes. Whatever posture helps you to feel more prayerful, whatever enables you to get into the right state of body and mind for us to pray together now. Let's be fully present in this sacred time and space we've co-created, present with ourselves, with each other, and with that which lies within us and beyond us. Spirit of life, God of all love, in whom we live and move and have our being, we turn our full attention to you, the light within and without, as we tune into the depths of this life and the greater wisdom to which and through which we are all intimately connected. Be with us now as we allow ourselves to drop into the silence and the stillness at the very centre of our being. We gather here to be quiet and to pray, to find a time for our inner selves, our souls and spirits which lie hidden and often neglected within. Some of us this day will feel empty and tired, listless and grey. But emptiness and tiredness are also prayer, a cry for spiritual nourishment, an aching need for soothing and refreshment and the strength to go on. Some of us this day will feel alone, all too aware of our need for someone to love us, This too is a prayer without words, a longing and a sorrow which seeks for the healing spirit of love, the embrace of God's concern for us in spirit and in soul and in the practical hands of those who care. Some of us this morning are happy enough, some are content, some have hopes and plans for tomorrow and all of these are prayers too. Prayers of giving, prayers of gratitude, prayers of creative thought and dreams. So let us gather with our wordless prayers, prayers of our inner self, prayers of our inner truth. And may God be with us in these prayers sustaining them and enabling us to grow more aware of our wordless selves. May we be aware of the waters of our own spirit, which are always there for us to drink if we sit still and wait and listen. And in a good few moments of shared stillness now, may we speak inwardly some of these deepest prayers of our hearts, Maybe something in our own life or the life of the wider world is causing us grief or sorrow this day. Maybe we are feeling full of gratitude and feeling moved to give thanks for our blessings. Let us each silently lift up what is on our heart and ask for what we most need this day.
Spirit of life, God of all love. As this time of prayer draws to a close, we offer up our joys and our concerns, our hopes and our fears, our beauty and our brokenness. And we call on you for insight, healing and renewal. As we look forward now to the coming week, help us to live well each day and be our best selves, using our unique gifts in the service of love, justice and peace. Amen. Time to sing again. Our next hymn is on your hymn sheet. If you're in the church, Break Not the Circle. This is one of my favourites. Um, the tune is quite mournful, but the words are really beautiful. And I think they articulate something of what it is we're trying to create together in beloved community. I will just say as an aside, given the theme of this service, um, the words use a lot of embodied imagery. And that's something that's a point of contention in disability justice. If you use words like uh, sight and look and stand, are they exclusive? So I just wanted to acknowledge that given the, the theme of the service, but see what you make of it. Um, the words will be up on screen. Break not the circle. reading today is a little bit longer than usual about five minutes i think but it is important it's from a really excellent book by julia watts belzer entitled loving our own bones rethinking disability in an ableist world hopefully it's going to be one of the books we look at in more depth in our new better world book club in the new year the excerpt i wanted to share today is from a chapter on hiddenness and visibility this is what she writes. Disability is a broad umbrella category, one that encompasses a wide range of experiences. When I use the term disability, I include physical and sensory disabilities, cognitive and intellectual disabilities, mental health disabilities, 
and long-term health conditions like chronic pain and chronic fatigue. The way I use disability doesn't depend on having a particular diagnosis. Some of us pursue diagnosis while others flee from it. And some of us go for years without recognition from medical establishments. Disabilities affect bodies and minds in a thousand different ways. Some are present at birth, while others are acquired over the course of a lifetime. Some disabilities change over time, while others are fairly static. Some disabilities are obvious at first glance, but many, many more are not immediately apparent. I'm a wheelchair user, so my own disability is hyper-visible. The wheelchair is ubiquitous as a sign and signal of disability. Whenever I roll into a room, I often feel a frisson of awareness pass through the group. It's as if through my wheels alone, disability has suddenly entered the building. But that's a lie. Statistically, the majority of disability experiences aren't apparent at first glance. Diabetes, depression, hearing loss, arthritis, dyslexia, all of these experiences fall within the category of disability, but they often pass without notice. Certain factors make disability more likely to register. A white cane or a hearing aid, a guide dog or an emotional support animal, these often serve as indicators of disability. Autistic experience becomes strikingly apparent when a person is facing sensory overwhelm, but otherwise it might be recognisable only to friends or to other autistic kin. In disability circles, folks often distinguish between visible and invisible disabilities, and people with invisible disabilities often face dismissive attitudes, while those of us with visible disabilities often contend with the consequences of immediately being marked as disabled by strangers. It's the first thing sighted people know about me, and it's my most distinguishing characteristic. Now, let's be clear. Just because most passers-by can see my disability, it doesn't mean that they make accurate assumptions about it. In fact, my life is full of encounters with folks who are outraged that my disability didn't match their expectations. Like a significant number of wheelchair users, I have some ability to move my legs, and I can stand for a moment or two if I'm willing to pay for that in pain. But I rarely do. It's not just the physical cost that holds me back. Standing up from a wheelchair in a public place is a harrowing experience. People are aghast and often angry. I've been accused of faking it. I've had folks threaten to take my wheels away. I've heard them make jokes about miracles. Complete strangers get agitated if they see me move my legs. They assume that wheelchair users are entirely paralysed and they get outraged if I don't fit their preconceptions. And non-disabled people are regularly in positions of power and authority over disabled people. Do you want the keys to the locked service lift? First, you've got to convince the gatekeeper who's watching your every move, probing whether or not you deserve to use it. About to use a disabled parking space? Be prepared to face a gauntlet of vigilante enforcement officers judging your fitness. People with invisible disabilities face this kind of scrutiny full on. And when disability isn't immediately obvious, people tend to assume our bodies and minds will mirror normative expectations. Many countries now provide civil rights protections for disabled people. 
employers and educators and agencies must provide reasonable accommodations to disabled people who need alternative arrangements to do our jobs, earn our degrees and move through our days. But the increasing availability of disability accommodations has also intensified public anxiety about disability fraud, about the way that people might masquerade as dis disabled people in order to secure benefits or special advantages. Politicians have often successfully played on public fears of the so-called disability con in order to cut public benefits and impose austerity measures that have devastating impacts on real people's lives. And for people with invisible disabilities, this attitude of hostile suspicion makes it harder to disclose disability and to ask for the accommodations we need. Disabled folks face gatekeepers who decide if we qualify for disability benefits or insurance coverage for school programs or support services. And the answer to that question, are you disabled enough, has the power to shape whether we get by in life or whether we get left behind. Powerful words from Julia Watts-Belzer. So we're gonna move into a time of meditation now. I'm gonna share a prayer poem by Irina Kim Eubanks. It was written for a disability pride event and it's titled, For a House We Can All Live In. It's a strong expression of something we might aspire to as a hopefully inclusive church. The prayer poem will take us into three minutes of silence that will end with the sound of a bell. And then we'll hear some music from Benji and Andrew to continue the mood. So again, let's do what we need to do to get comfortable. You might want to put your feet flat on the floor. You might want to close your eyes and the words are an offering. Feel free to use this time to meditate in your own way. God of creativity, of diversity, multiplicity, and accessibility. You say in your house are many rooms. You build a space where all can dwell and live exactly as who we are, without shame. So forgive us for the ways your church has shut out and shut in for making barriers to your presence, forging walls to togetherness, creating hierarchies of bodies and minds and building environments that are disabling. Help us to co-create with you a house that welcomes the fullness of ourselves. Inspire creativity for universal design marked not just by widened doors and ramped walkways, but also widened language and open processes. Give us fortitude to build spaces that are physically accessible and psychologically safe. Welcoming of neurodiversity, acknowledging the wholeness of who we are, our complete need for each other and for every gift we bring. May your way of shalom, in which every kind of mind, body and spirit are honoured as valuable and good, may it be made manifest in our world.
so that all your children have room to flourish.
So I've called this next section Reflections on Changing Perceptions of Disability. And in a minute, we'll get to hear some first-person perspectives, the lived experience of two members of our congregation. But I just want to offer a few introductory remarks before I hand over. In preparing this service, I had cause to reflect on just how ignorant I'd been about the lives of disabled people when I was younger. When I was a child, I guess I just thought about disabled people as other, completely different. I suppose I thought I was normal and it had nothing to do with me. I would have had a very limited view at that time of what it meant to be disabled. As far as I was concerned, it meant being a wheelchair user or profoundly deaf or completely blind. Maybe also I had some awareness of Down syndrome and cerebral palsy. That was probably about it. My life was sheltered. I didn't get out much, literally. I don't remember encountering anyone with a disability at all when I was a kid. At that time, in my mind, disabled people were just the passive subjects of charity collections on Blue Peter, and no more than that. Not proud of it, obviously. However, at some point, for reasons that escaped me, I got into watching a, a programme on BBC Two. I didn't go to church then. I think it was on Sunday mornings when there was not much else on. There was a programme called One in Four, a BBC Two disability magazine show hosted by the spiky-haired and punky presenter Mick Scarlett, and that presented a more radical perspective. I particularly remember stories about disability activists chaining themselves to inaccessible buses in front of Downing Street. It was quite a wake-up call for me to see disabled people presented as agents of their own de destiny. But I think the thing that really blew my mind was something that the comedian Richard Herring said many, many years ago. It, it was on his blog about 12 years ago, but I'm sure I heard him say it even earlier than that. He's a comedian that's done a lot of fundraising for Scope over the last few decades, uh, which I think is how he came to be writing about such matters. And this is what he wrote back in 2011. It, it blew my mind and I've never forgotten it. He wrote... One of the things that astounds me about the general population's attitude towards disability, whether that's fear, disdain, or just the attempt to pretend that there's no such thing, is that ultimately it is likely to be the fate of us all, except those who die suddenly at a young age. A few years ago, I was discussing with a wheelchair user how I should refer to people who weren't disabled. Non-disabled sounds to me like a double negative, Abled doesn't really feel like a fair description of most people. I don't feel particularly able. She replied that the term she used was the not yet disabled, which is funny, but also incredibly revealing. It was a bit of a moat falling from the eyes moment for me, I remember. If we don't die suddenly, we are all probably becoming gradually more and more disabled. So you'd think that self-interest would encourage us and make us all anxious to fight for equality for those with disabilities, or at least improve disabled access and increase the numbers of disabled toilets. But just because we are unable or unwilling to envision our own gradual decline, we pretend it's someone else's problem. Just pretend you're gonna be young and mobile forever, and that there's no danger of you being in an accident or getting a disease. Does something actually have to happen to us before we can start thinking of the world from another's perspective? I guess it does. Words from the comedian Richard Herring, which absolutely shook me out of my previous naive view of disability. It opened me up to seeking out the views of disabled writers and justice activists. 
And more recently, it's got me thinking about the fuzzy and shifting boundary between disabled and non-disabled, as I've come to realise the ways in which my own activities are limited by the various quirks of my body and mind. There is clearly a lot more to say on this subject, and we're only scratching the surface today, but I want to hand over to other voices now. I'm going to invite Hannah to come up first to share a reflection written by Karen Hill-Jones on her experience of becoming disabled as a result of COVID in the first wave of the pandemic. And then we're going to hear from Mikaela about her experience of becoming visually disabled over the past few years. So these will be Karen's reflections on becoming disabled as a result of COVID-19. I would like to contribute the idea that anyone can become disabled. Until I became disabled myself, it simply hadn't occurred to me that I could lose my status as an able part of the workforce so suddenly and through no fault of my own. I had always treasured my health, had done everything a conscientious person might do to maintain it. In my 20s, I used to swim a couple of miles a week and cycled a few miles to work each day and back. A year before the pandemic started, I had a standard health check offered by the NHS to 40-year-old people and was told I had above-average fitness for a person my age, probably from pushing kids in a double buggy around Stoke Newington every day. I never thought I would become mostly housebound with no foreseeable route uh, to recover my previous fitness. The government rhetoric at the start of the pandemic led me to believe that if I caught COVID, it posed no danger to me. The long COVID Facebook forums are full of people like me who feel cheated that they did everything right in their lives and yet still got this outcome. I remember phoning my GP to find out why I was so unwell, wanting to figure out whatever underlying health condition caused this, and him very gently explaining to me that this was just a myth put out there by the government and that scientifically, anyone can become disabled at any point in their lives. Shortly after that conversation, I heard the writer Jack Thorne speak about how damaging government rhetoric about disabled people had been. The constant insinuation that their lives were fundamentally different and less valuable. How difficult it had been for that ableism to come out into plain sight and be so rarely held to account and challenged. I can't help but feel that since so-called Freedom Day, when COVID restrictions were largely abandoned by the UK government, things have gotten worse rather than better. My family and disabled friends are now substantially less free than our more able friends, especially in terms of safe access to public space. In day-to-day -day conversations, people often question my disability to my face or ask searching questions, looking for the underlying health condition that separates them from me so that they can carry on feeling the illusion of personal safety. And yet my occupational therapist told me that since they stopped diagnosing people with long COVID, ME and CFS diagnoses have risen in a way that suggests that we as a society are still knowingly disabling people on a daily basis. I find this preventable suffering so tragic. It has been nearly four years now and there are still newly disabled people coming into the forums in complete shock at what has happened to their bodies and their lives. I'm so tired of hearing their stories. I wonder where the tipping point lies, 
where we will rise up and descend from this. get used to the light here a little bit. Um, so this is the preamble to reflecting on being disabled and becoming gradually, very gradually, becoming able to ask for help. Patricia is going to do the, the sort of substantive thing. This is just a little context. Um, so I'll briefly tell you how I collected a new identity tag as visually disabled. This was a challenge that sooner or later um, catches up with many of us. And I think that's the message of this service. It catches up with many of us. Um, partially blind. I now need more help than ever. About three years ago, I suddenly lost sight in my right eye, but not until gradually my left eye deteriorated did I have a feeling of, did I lose my feeling of independence. When hope for improvement ceased, I had to face fearing going blind in some future. Determined to do what most of us do, I, I adjusted and focused being in the here and now, where I was, I am able to do various things. I couldn't read books anymore. And that was quite a big thing for me because my house was full of books and they represented a lifetime of learning and enjoyment. So 3,000 books went to do an earnest of this is real because that's part of the problem. Um, so I, I count my blessings, for example, Sainsbury's local very rarely changes where they put things. So I don't really need my eyes, I need, need my memory, how I walk there. Um, and I need help with my electronics, with clothes shopping, because I can't see whether anything's very well. So, I mean, I'm laughing about it now, but the whole process of getting used to having to ask for help with all these things is what Patricia is going to talk about. Um, I still enjoy the shadow of the birds on my pages. And I write on my computer, emails with friends, connections, and I can see, still see clients on Skype. I mean, the outline is vague, but most of them I have seen when they were there in body, so it's okay. I think that's enough. I, I, I can't read it well enough. Patricia, you are my... My voice. I have your voice today. On being disabled, giving and receiving help, no pride, no shame. 
When Jane asked me to say something about my experience of becoming visually disabled, I knew that for my own benefit, I had to keep chipping away at the cultural belief that needing help is the shameful stepsister when we talk of giving and receiving. I keep trying to disable the belief that autonomy and giving are blessed while depending on help is a condition of lack. My major task in my new visual dependency is to disable that hierarchy and shout from the rooftops that we all need to learn the art of receiving. Giving is easy in comparison. When dependency caught up with me, I had to learn all the lessons of the past again. I thought I knew a thing or two about giving and receiving from my work in practice as a professional helper in psychiatry. My clients taught me how difficult the tradition from autonomous giver of help to needing it can be for many of us. We are trained in believing that giving is holier than receiving, autonomy better than dependency. A giver exercises the power of generosity and gets brownie points for it. Receiving help in our society puts us on a lower rung of society's hierarchy of values. Benefit receivers are not so secret targets of disdain. We shrink from need and dependency in ourselves even more than in others who offer us the chance to keep playing the richer card. Consciously, I know for sure that autonomy and independence are divisive issues. But feeling really in need of help triggered all my childhood fears of being a burden to others. What saved me was knowing how glad I am when people ask for something. I have long been aware of the connecting, life-affirming power people have who simply ask. They have the power of connecting fairy godmothers and their beloved Cinderella, who have the power of opening up the fairy godmothers need to give. It's marvelous really, and all shades of shame dissolve. This is an egalitarian transaction where er no everybody wins, no pride, no shame, just trusting the reciprocity and interconnection that is life itself. Giving and receiving aligns us with our deep need to belong in mutual thriving, our common curriculum. No one is an island. We are connected by need and abundance, ready to join the merry dance of togetherness, felt independence that disables illusions of separateness. Joining on the level, we can face this complicated business of living and make the arrival of disability an opportunity to learn something new. I know how ashamed I was of my dependency and why I never stopped thanking my clients for generously sharing their need and accepting what I was burning to give. Together we began to learn that there is no hierarchy in giving and receiving, just life and relatedness. 
We think I was well prepared with my egalitarian outlook on giving and receiving to face my sight loss when it happened. Truth is that when my one eye demanded much more help from others, the shoe was on the other foot, roles were reversed. I was the one in need and had to face my deep aversion to being a burden to others. Occasionally now, I have a brief glimpse of what I know to be true, too slightly yet, that on a spiritual level, there is indeed no difference between giving and receiving while we accompany each other on this short journey we share. So thanks to Michaela and Patricia, thanks to Hannah and Karen. I'm sure there's a lot more we could say, but very grateful for that. Time for our last hymn now. It's number 36 in the Purple Hymn Books. For everyone born a place at the table, the words will be up on screen again. Sing up as best you can.
love that one. I shall try to speed through the announcements because I know we're running a little long. Thanks to Janine for hosting. Thanks to Sherry at home. Thanks to everyone for their reflections today. Uh, to Andrew and Benji for our music. Thanks Liz for doing coffee. She's already gone off and I've completely lost track of who was greeting in the end. Hannah, thank you. Um, we've got coffee and walnut cake. If you're here in the building, please do stay and help us eat it. If you're online, please stay for a chat with Sherry. We've got all these small group activities coming up in the weeks to come. Heart and Soul online tonight and Friday on Enlightenment. This is an ambitious topic for a Sunday evening. Sonia will be here with her near class on Friday lunchtime. The poetry group is this Wednesday. Have a word with Brian if you want to come along to that. The community singing group will be back the following Wednesday. That was absolutely fabulous last month. Do come along. That's on the 13th. Our main carol service is on the 17th. There's a potluck lunch. If you want to bring anything along, please let Patricia know. And we've got a solstice event on the 22nd and our candlelit carol service on the 24th. So plenty going on. Bring your friends. Next Sunday, Sarah will be here with our service on festivals of light. All the activities are listed on the back of your order of service and they're in the Friday email if you're at home. The congregation very much has a life beyond Sunday mornings. We encourage you to keep in touch, nurture supportive connections and look after each other as best you can. So just time for our closing words and closing music. Our hour of worship draws to a close. May what we have found here of truth and beauty, insight and challenge, love and comfort, remain with us as we go our separate ways. And may the blessing of this time together light our way through the week ahead, calling from us the strength and courage we may need to meet the days to come. Amen. <laughs>